2: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Michelin star chef Sarah Gruenberg tells us to listen
3: to our veggies. After you you eat it, you go, that was really good. But those peppers under that chicken, those were the best bite I had. It's not always about being the lead singer, right? It, It can be the supporting vocals. Plus,
4: did you know
2: writer's block is pretty much as old as writing itself?
4: A grocery list is not going to create writer's block, but if you're writing something really meaningful that you want to communicate to an audience, the stakes can be very high.
2: But first, here's our chance to sit back, relax, and get ready for a spooky weekend with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have Vanity Fair correspondent and author of the upcoming book Central Places, Delia Kai. Delia, welcome back. Hello. So glad to be back. We also have Nick Kwa, a podcast critic for Vulture. Hi, Nick.
1: Hello, hello. It's so spooky. So spooky. It's
2: so spooky. So since it is pretty much the hollow weekend, we're gonna stay on the extremely autumnal side of things today. First, I would love to know if either of you actually has Halloween spirit. I really I mean, I consider myself to be vaguely witchy, but like I don't care about this holiday pretty much at all. Uh Nick, are you dressing up?
1: You know, I as a teenager I was got goth adjacent.
2: Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's a no. That's a hard no then. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I'm just saying that these days I'm far too lazy to dress up, but uh, right. I, I've gone for a very easy costume this year and I'm very proud of it.
2: Ooh, what is it?
1: Well, I say proud. I've actually, it's, it's something I caught elsewhere. It's the whole Nathan Fielder rehearsal thing. I got oh, a little one of those things. It's amazing. like, listen, that's <laughs> low cost. It's low effort. It's perfect.
2: So you got a button-up shirt, you have a button-up shirt, and you got the laptop holder things. I got you know? the
1: laptop holder, and I got the uh, gray sweater, which was already in my closet.
2: Oh, yes. Oh,
5: amazing. Delia, are you going to dress up? Okay, I actually have this, like, thing where I love Halloween, but I never really have plans. <laughs> um, I think it doesn't occur to me to make or seek out plans, and then I'm, like, kind of grumpy because I want to dress up. But I haven't invested in a costume without plans. And then I'm just like sitting forlornly, like in my apartment watching the kids trick or treat outside. (laughs) (laughs) Like I want to lean into Halloween, but I never actually get it together to do so.
2: Oh my God.
5: That's such an amazing vibe. (laughs) (laughs) There's like a Halloween freak in me just waiting to be unleashed. But like (laughs) someone just has to talk to me about it like three or four months in
2: advance. I feel like on November 1st, we should touch base and come up with a plan for you for next yeah, year. Yeah, I know. Oh, that's right?
1: enough time. That's ample time. You yeah.
2: know? Yeah. Like, we could figure it out, and it could be great. So, Nick, <laughs> I feel like your costume is already super pop culture-y, Delia, and of, like, all of the abundance of pop culture things that have happened in this beautiful year 2022, if you could get your shit together for a costume, is there something in particular that you think would be, like, a fun pop culture or, like, ridiculous-slash-awful costume?
5: For a while, I was thinking of maybe dressing up as Harper from HBO's show oh, Industry. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> because I had this whole thing where I really coveted this, like, ivory turtleneck she wears season two. <laughs> Someone on the internet found it. It's, like, from Ooh. And Other Stories. I bought it. It's amazing. Oh, you have it. So you can totally like, do this. Right? But then I was like, I don't want to wear, like, a white, nice sweater to a party. <laughs> um... <laughs> i was i was like i don't want to go to a party in work clothes like it, it sort of was this mm. weird realization of like oh like i even have a little like trader's headset um oh so for God. a minute i was like really into it and then i was like i don't want to wear like work slacks to a bar uh, that's yeah, that thing.
2: fun <laughs> that's hilarious that reminds me i mean the thing i immediately thought of was the amazing like day dress slash robe thing that florence Pugh wears oh in don't the, worry the darling purple color yes. one? Yes, oh it's gorgeous. But I was talking to a friend about it the other day and he was like, if it's something you would wear normally, then it it's just cheating if you use it as a Halloween yeah, costume. Yeah. I did get a DM from our producer, Anna, earlier today that just said, how does one dress up as a Negroni Spagliato?
5: <laughs> Which I thought was a great <laughs> question. Oh my God, there are going to be so many of those now that you say it. I'm like, <laughs> I can see it.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but I'm into it. So whatever your costume, Americans are expected to spend more than ever this year on Halloween, especially when it comes to candy. Candystore.com is on top of this story. The site did a poll that broke down the most popular Halloween candy in every state. We have lots of questions around methodology with this one, but we're just going to kind of go with it. Uh, Illinois and New York both say Sour Patch Kids are the most popular candy candy. Nick, in Idaho it's Snickers. Does that track for you?
1: I don't know. I, I feel like uh, I don't watch people eating enough to uh <laughs> to ascertain whether that is true. However, I do feel like the absence of Haribo gummy bears or gummy bears in general causes mm. me to, to question the the methodology. Uh you know interesting. I would love that crosstab to be made public. I would like to see uh breakdowns a <laughs> <of> demographic. <laughs>
2: so yeah delia you're in new york does the sour patch kids is that like does that resonate with your personal truth
5: yeah i guess i never really realized the chokehold that sour patch kids <laughs> have on the public <laughs> like i think i uh am still very conscious of braces like like you know the stuff mm. you can even have braces and oh, then i just stopped eating that uh yeah. but oh you have you, yeah. so you
1: still have braces trauma
5: yeah i have (laughs) racist trauma but there's something like a little masochistic right about sour candy so that to me that
1: fits for new york
2: (laughs) that's hilarious um nick did you spend more this year than ever before on
5: candy
1: uh not yet but uh as of uh, friday probably is (laughs) what i'm doing it (laughs) i was very miserly last year so uh nick you're not a
5: big bar house you're not a king bar house
1: okay here's the thing. That's really, you know I think the snicker the small uh, party size bar is you know very bad for an environment so I'm gonna get like a gigantic oh. tub of gummy bears and I'm like go have kids
5: just like loose bears like you're oh yeah,
1: like yeah 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 you know get a scoop you know make it sanitary yeah yeah
2: yeah that's okay. great yeah good thing good thing we're still in a pandemic that's <laughs> great <laughs> um, okay so there's another story that went viral this week that I. Adored for a number of reasons. This is about a woman who's been making recipes that she finds on green stones and making videos about them for TikTok. Of course, she started doing this when she was in librarian school, which is partly why I love it so much. Uh she has done cookie like a variety of cookies, spritz cookies, snickerdoodles, fudge, peach cobbler, a lot of desserts, stuff on the sweet side. Um, I just think this is amazing. Delia, if you had to put a recipe on your tombstone, what would it be? Ooh,
5: I guess in a way that would like represent my personality, maybe like yeah. a really good chocolate cake. Ooh, I'm one of those people who are like, there's no such thing as too chocolatey. Like, please make it 100% cocoa. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <I don't laughs>
1: the like more that. the better.
5: I want to be in yes. and eating it.
2: <laughs> what about you, Nick? Do you have an idea for that?
1: I feel like the, uh, you know, the most well-branded thing to do is to go like, oh, you know, a dish from my home, Malaysia, some, mm. something, you know, yeah. you know, uh, culturally and ethnically related. But I think the truth is, uh, you know, one of my favorite recipes of all time is Tom Hiddleston's bolognese uh, pos- uh, sauce that uh, I believe first made its appearance in Taffy berdasner Ackner's profile of him, but was really uh-huh. uh, enshrined in GQ. So that is <laughs> that's probably the recipe that's going to go in my grave.
2: Oh my god what is it is it a complicated one no it's just are.
1: it's just a really straightforward relatively easy bolognese recipe it's, it's uh it's That's great amazing. i've never found one that was that simple
5: Oh, i want to try that yeah <laughs> i'll
1: send it to you later that
5: sounds great
2: i wonder does that count as like potential tombstone recipe plagiarism though you know what i mean no if you put like, what if he tom
1: hiddleston's <laughs> Sauce. All, then, as long as there's yeah, proper underneath there is Nicholas Qua 1990- <laughs> dash question mark, question mark, question mark.
5: You've like chiseled the GQ link onto so
1: <laughs> It's a QR a code. W-W-W- yeah. Oh, yeah, the QR.
5: Wow, I wonder if anyone's had to chisel a QR
2: code. Oh, my this God. Is fa- and this is just a direction I did not think we were going, y'all. And I'm delighted by uh, this.
1: Disrupt graveyards. <laughs>
2: So I mentioned later in this episode, we're talking to someone about the history of writer's block. Given the fact that both of you are writers, I was curious if this is something you have to contend with and or
5: what you do about it. Delia? Yeah, I always love talking to people about this. Whenever I'm about to write something, it's like the worst feeling, right? It's like when Mm, it's just you're staring down the road. So I've kind of made this like middle step for myself where I call it like writing the shell um, mm-hmm. I don't even call it a draft cause it doesn't deserve that title, but I just sort of like word vomit. It's like just the worst writing imaginable, but it's kind of amazing because I think once I do that first like purge, um, I'm like, okay, there are paragraphs on a page. We can work with this, And from there it's like smooth sailing. And so I think even when I, when I'm like super blocked, I sort of, it's like really helpful for me to be like, you don't need to write. An amazing draft. You don't even have to write, you know, like real words. You just have to like write the shell of it. That's mm-hmm. what's definitely helped me.
2: That makes total sense because it seems like a lot of it is just sort of getting that momentum of like, okay, yeah. it's not actually as hard as my brain is telling me it's going to be. I just have to get stuff out and then keep going from there.
5: Yeah. I'll like set a timer. I'll be like, okay, you have like half an hour, just like write like four mm. paragraphs of nonsense. And most of it's <laughs> unusable, right? But then somehow it just <laughs> removes the fear.
1: God, that's such a good tactic. Uh. That's awesome. What
2: about you, Nick? What do you do?
1: <laughs> you are speaking to me like in year three of an extended lawyer's block, um, mm. just to say that wow. I, I have not remembered anything I've written for a very long time or felt proud of it. Uh, my mm. usual method is um, sit down and feel very bad for a very long time and, and then <laughs> tell my editor, like, I'm going to get you something in two days. Like, hold me to it, <laughs> if not fire me. Um, and it's never failed me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs>
5: So the
1: stakes are so high. I know that's the only way I do anything. Is when I feel like I am mortally, existentially threatened.
2: Just peak stress. Does it happen to you? I so I feel like I'm in a middle ground of you too. And you know, for me, it's often not writing. It'll be like interview prep, or you know, what maybe it is script writing. But in any case, I feel like often I I amplify the stakes artificially, like you, Nick. But then what does end up happening is, like, once I have completed the task, I feel really good and really relieved. And part of me wonders if, like, that is part of the necessary cycle where, like, I have to make it seem like it's going to be harder and more pleasant than it is because then the relief and delight on the other side of it is so nice to bask in. Do you give yourself that part, Nick, or is it just always peak stress? (laughs)
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, I I think the 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 primary feeling I have whenever I file a Jeff and something goes up is like I am spent my I am so exposed. I'm gonna I'm gonna go like hide in a hole and watch TV for like twelve hours. See me later.
2: <laughs> so then shifting gears slightly, have you watched anything good in your intense T V time?
1: Oh my goodness. Right now I'm uh, I'm watching Andor, which is uh, a, oh, yeah. a miracle. It's a <laughs> it's a very good T V show about uh, the ideology and bureaucracy of revolutions that happens to be a Star Wars Star Wars show. <laughs> and I'm just like I can't believe this exists. Um and uh yeah, I I'm still <laughs> Uh, the watcher is high trash, but I, I'm afraid I'm still thinking about mortgages uh, related to uh, the wow. greater New Jersey area. So I, <laughs> I guess I recommend that too. But I, it's a mixed recommendation.
2: I mean, you know that phrase "high trash" really appeals to me, so I am probably going to dive into that this weekend.
5: Delia, <laughs> what are you? What are you
2: watching these days?
5: Well, I was riveted for every episode of House of the Dragon. Like, kind of mm. surprisingly, I didn't think it was going to be good. It was a little wobbly at first, but. The return of appointment television i I think I think it is back, and then I've also spent the last couple of months rewatching new Girl, and I'm kind of surprised Ooh, that it holds up. Wow,
1: it holds up, Wow, like, it's
5: really funny. <laughs> it holds up for the most part, and I think that like watching it now as someone like approaching my thirties because they're all in their thirties it like so much of it makes more sense to me than like when I was watching it in college and sort of being like, why are they acting this way <laughs> about like you know, taking a fertility test or mm. like, you know, dealing with like, like older parents. And I, it just felt like a different universe. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is like how people in our thirties, uh, start responding to things.
1: Do, do you think there's like a gap between like aspirational viewing and like contemporaneous viewing? If you, yeah. if you know what I mean? Cause you know how people yeah. like say, uh, like certain magazines are actually like, cl- uh, aged older, but it's meant for a younger demographic. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like you enjoyed New old now more so than you did back then?
2: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's something just so funny to me about the idea of like aging into New Girl. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, right. <laughs> i'm looking forward to aging into sex in a city personally but
5: uh, yeah let's go (laughs) i'll be like yeah brunch really is that hard that's right (laughs) friends are busy and successful like yeah it is a miracle they all got together
2: well nick delia thank you both so much this was very fun thank you thank you Our next guest is Sarah Gruenberg. She's a Michelin star winning chef. She was on Top Chef and she runs the amazing Italian restaurant Monteverdi in Chicago. And she has a new cookbook. It is called Listen to Your Vegetables. Sarah, welcome to Nerdette.
3: (laughs) Hi, how are you?
2: So I have to say this title, Listen to Your Vegetables. The first thing I think of is like, listen to your mother. Is that the vibe you're kind of going for? (laughs)
3: no you know I think chefs do this we don't realize it but we we like to think about like what's the best way to cook something that it wants how it would want to be cooked I mean I think Mm. all types of foods even you know if it's vegetables or seafood like it's a really big like it's a responsibility to take something that's been made and or grown or raised or hunted I take a lot of respect with that so Mm. I found that I was cooking at home based on what veggies I had in the fridge and I was traveling a lot. So having a lot of cabbages and and the cabbages were like, (laughs) you know, we got you. We can stay in this fridge for like weeks and be good. And so so then that's kind of how it started was, oh, I actually do hear them talk to me. And so that's what the book's about. I love that so much. Every recipe is is vegetarian focused. And so it, it also could be, The thing that highlights that dish that in a way after you you eat it, you go, that was really good. But those peppers under that chicken, Mm -hmm. those were the best bite I had. It's not always about being the lead singer, right? It it can be the supporting vocals.
2: I love that analogy. And it's fun, too, because I do think it like the idea of really, you know, honoring the ingredient to the point where it can sing. In a dish is a really lovely idea. It's super evocative.
3: Thank you. That's, it's, it's how the Italians cook. I don't know how they figured out how to make things taste incredible with four ingredients or three ingredients. And it's really, (laughs) it's it's really about that ingredient. It's, you know, that cuisine specifically Japanese cuisine. Also, they're very simplistic cuisines that almost the technique or how you treat the ingredient is as important as the ingredients listed.
2: Mm it's funny to hear you mention cabbage because I remember when that cookbook *Ruffage* came out probably three ish years ago. Now we had Abra Barons on to talk about it. And yeah, she like, we ended up titling the episode, a love letter to cabbage. Cause she just spoke so beautifully around yes. the, you know, she, and she's even like the shishito pepper, like it's lovely, but like it's, so, it's so fleeting, but like that cabbage is going to be yeah. there for you when you need her.
3: <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, I, I like to call those my like fridge warriors or my hearty bunch <laughs> vegetables like cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels, cabbage. Yeah, yeah. Buying some things that you know can get you that quick meal that you don't have a plan for because you have yeah. that vegetable in the in the drawer.
2: Yeah. In general, what do you think people are kind of missing when it comes to cooking vegetables?
3: I think that it depends on the vegetable. So I think just. Mm. Once you understand what that vegetable, how it cooks best, like for instance, mushrooms, Mm. I think that people overcrowd them in the pan and then they just, all their water comes out and you really don't develop the flavor. Oh, interesting. I would say also just kind of using vegetables as a muse versus the meat or protein first is what I hope people will think too.
2: I think that's a big one because so often you'll get a recipe that's like, you know, I don't need three pounds of chicken and like a couple tomatoes or something. And you're like, but wait a second, like,
3: you know. Well, and growing up in Texas, like it wasn't considered a meal if there wasn't a meat or something. Right, on the right. Plate. Like a slab of meat. <laughs> yeah. And same with the Midwestern um, yes, style. Totally. I think, you know, Jamie, my husband's from Indiana, so he grew up the mm. same way. And so Uh, my aunt, when I first told her that I was going to write a cookbook about vegetables, she said, no one's going to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) And and she she didn't get it. She was like, no, I I can't cook at home without going to the store and getting a piece of meat. And so Mm. I cooked for her a little bit and then she was like, oh, I get it. And Mm. it can be as rewarding. I mean, think of like an eggplant farm, not a ton of ingredients, but you don't even miss the meat. No, no. So I'm curious, you know,
2: as a person who also is running a restaurant, how is recipe development at the restaurant different from recipe development for the cookbook?
3: Oh, yes. Well, I found it was alarming to actually measure all of the butter that sometimes goes into a restaurant recipe <laughs> or the salt. There's a reason that we eat out and think this tastes way better than blank blank that I make newsflash it's salt and oil or butter that's making it so much better <laughs> um my italian friends they they commonly say that olive oil is the lubricator of, of flavor if you don't mm-hmm. have a fat the flavor doesn't go across the palate the same way
0: mm-hmm. i would
3: say that too like of course at home i don't measure oil i just have it in a little thing and just pour it and so as I wrote the recipes, I realized, you know, some areas where I wanted you to measure and then there's other areas where it's like, hey, grab a few mm-hmm. handfuls of basil and throw it right. in. Like it's not. Don't put this in a measuring cup. You'll figure it out. Measuring herbs like that, like cups of herbs yeah. is yeah. like makes me have a headache. First of all, I do not <laughs> even have a measuring cup big enough. So really giving the, the reader and the cook at home the confidence that if you don't measure it perfectly, it's not going to jeopardize the recipe. Oh. Amazing. So
2: before I let you go, it's kind of, it almost feels wintry out today in Chicago. It's like, it's cold. It's pretty cold. It's like a gloomy day. We had, apparently there was like a tiny smidgen of snow this morning. Um, yes. And I was wondering if you could recommend a recipe from the cookbook that you think would be like the perfect thing to have for dinner on a day like today.
3: Oh, I would say the pappardelle with the luck and money ragu, which is the black mm. eyed pea Brussels sprout, oh. like a vegetarian ragu or the braised root vegetables with polenta would be super yummy.
2: Oh my God. Those both just sound totally delicious. And I can't wait to eat them.
3: <laughs> Me too.
2: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really fun to talk with you.
3: Thank you so much. This is
2: amazing. In just a minute, a brief history of writer's block.
0: Nerdette is supported by The Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: If you have ever been stuck sitting at your keyboard with an idea in mind, but no way to execute it, then hooray, you have experienced writer's block. And that is completely okay, because according to Joyce Kincaid, an English professor at Utah State University, writer's block is no superstition.
4: Oh my goodness, uh, absolutely not. It's real. And for some, it could be really debilitating.
2: In her article for The Conversation, The 5,000-Year History of Writer's Block, Joyce says Writer's Block goes back as far as writing itself.
4: Sumer was where writing systems actually started in 3200 BCE. And scribes, when they moved from just making little tally marks to actually doing wedges that had some meeting, which was cuneiform, they would call on the goddess Nisaba. For help with their handwriting. People called on deities
2: and goddesses and saints when writing because, especially in the early days, it was not an easy task.
4: And writing was darn hard work. Imagine having a stylus that you have to, you know, poke into the clay. This is why there are gods, goddess, patron saints, because writing is darn hard work.
2: Even now when all we have to do is tap a keyboard, there is a lot of pressure on a writer.
4: You're really putting yourself down on the page and you're demonstrating vulnerability when you write. I mean, okay, a grocery list is not going to create writer's block, but if you're writing something really meaningful that you want to communicate to an audience, the stakes can be very high.
2: So how do professional writers overcome their writer's block? Joyce has spent years studying the works of great writers, many of whom have experienced writer's block at some point in their careers. From Fran Lebowitz to Joseph Mitchell,
4: it seems no
2: one is immune.
4: You know, these are award-winning authors, okay? It's not not easy for them either. So what do they do to overcome it? Ann Patchett actually got a, a good tip uh, that she talks about in one of her essays about doing a, a sign-in sheet on her writing office door. And so she just checks in to write every day. And that habit is really important for for developing good writing behaviors.
2: And for others, it's as simple as waiting your
4: turn. I'm thinking about what Flannery O'Connor said. Uh, I don't know if the muse is going to show up, but from eight o'clock to noon every day, I'm going to be sitting at my writing desk.
2: Seeing that Joyce is a college professor, she too has a couple tricks up her sleeve for encouraging her students' writing flow.
4: I often tell them to do a data dump, just do a free write. It really helps for students to get positive feedback so they want to continue. And so that's something I really stress is uh, let's talk first about what works and then let's talk about what needs work.
2: And when it really comes down to it, Joyce says it can be very helpful to remember the wisdom of another famous
4: writer. Dorothy Parker, that famous whip, said, I, I don't like writing, but I love having written
2: Right, that's it for this week hope y'all have an excellent weekend whether or not you're celebrating the holiday thanks as always for listening don't forget next week also just happens to be next month which is to say we have a new book club selection our november pick is laura worrell's sweet soft plenty rhythm keep an ear out for our spoiler free author interview that drops in the feed on tuesday and then of course we will fully discuss the book on the last tuesday of the month the show is produced by me and Anna Bauman, along with Sam Deer. And our executive producer is Brendan Vanazek Have a spooky day.
0: How weird is that? That
2: was weird. It was weird.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen